how many of you are aware that when Jesus Christ was walking the earth and when he was presenting his gospel, there was no New Testament yet? We all are, we're all aware of that, right? So everything that he did and everything that he spoke and everywhere that he went uh, were things that can be found not in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. Now they can be found in the New Testament because they were recorded. Uh, but if you read the Gospel of John, it ends uh, in, in, with a few scriptures. One scripture saying that um, if they were to write everything, John says, if I were to record and write everything that Jesus Christ actually did, every miracle that he performed, every word that he spoke, if we were going to try to give you a full-on play-by-play testimony from the time he was 30 until the time he was 33, 33 and a half, John says there was, there's not enough room on the planet to contain the books that we would have to write for everything that he did. So what we have in the New Testament is a snippet of the work and the ministry that Jesus Christ did while he was here on earth. And that snippet and everything else that's not in there all comes from the Old Testament. He had nothing else to teach from. We understand that? So when Jesus said, Eli, Eli, Sabachthani, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? He was actually quoting a scripture from way back in the book of Psalms, chapter number 22. And that's where we're going to go this morning. Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 1. At least a thousand years before the crucifixion of Christ. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you hear not. And the night season and I'm not silent, but you are holy. Oh, you that inhabit the praises of Israel. Our father, our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you did deliver them. They cried unto you and they were delivered. They trusted in you and they were not confounded. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of people. And it goes on and on. And you see more and more prophetic description of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as they divide his clothes and cast lots. There's a lot of good things here. But you are holy, verse 3, you that inhabit the praises of Israel. How many of you have ever been at a point in your life where you're praying, you're seeking God's face, you really need something, you really need an answer, you really need him to show up, and seemingly, in your, in your view, nothing happens, and you get frustrated, and you, this question wells up inside of you, and maybe you even say it out loud, God, where are you? Have you ever felt like that? Where are you? I mean, I know you're there and everywhere, but... Where are you right now in my situation? Where are you? You ever felt like that? Well, it's interesting. If you want God to be present in your situation, God always requires a dwelling place. Moses, build me a tabernacle. Solomon, build me a temple. Jesus Christ was the tabernacle. He said, it's not me that does the work, it's the Father in me. He wanted a vehicle to travel inside of. Now that Jesus Christ has been crucified and resurrected, he says, no longer is he here, but you are the body of Christ and he desires his spirit to dwell in you. God wants a dwelling place. So if you're inviting God into your situation, you can take Psalm 22, verse three, a little bit literally, and you can start praising him. And you can start worshiping him because it says here that he inhabits. Everybody say dwell. dwell. In the praises of his people and the praises of Israel. If you've ever wondered why is it that we start off every service with three or four or five worship songs 
It's partially that we can get our hearts right and get our minds right, but we want God to dwell among us. So we lift up our hands, we praise the God of Israel, and he says, I will inhabit those praises. There's so many different versions and translations of the Bible. They all say the same thing, basically. But when you get into word study and language study, you find uh, little idiosyncrasies, little differences. And it's very, very interesting, this Psalm 22, verse 3. uh, Because of the nuances of change when it comes to different languages, it changes the verbiage slightly. But it also can give you a deeper understanding of when you look it up in the Hebrew, which is the original language. When you take the Hebrew and you transliterate that verse into Chinese or Mandarin, the Chinese Bible actually says, but you are holy, O you that sit upon the praises of Israel, which is very interesting. And this, by the way, is not in the notes. So this must be for somebody. So if this is for you, it's for you. Receive it. You that sit on the praises of Israel. And it answers a question that a lot of people have had for a long time. You go through the book of Revelation and you begin to see that the prayers that we pray, the Bible says, God relates to the incense that was upon the altar in the Old Testament. In other words, when you pray, the example of that is the incense, which are lit with the coals uh, hot from repentance, and they're put on the altar of incense, and it raises up before God, and that's how your prayers should be. Yeah, we, we always need to be praying, and we always want to ask God to be in our situation, but if you know that you've made a decision to live in sin and you want something or need something from God, so you decide to pray, do not expect an answer if your heart has not repented. Amen. Does that make sense? So that's what the incense are. The prayers. The prayers go right into the throne room of God, the Bible says. Well, what happens to our worship? Because that's different. And that's always kind of been a question. When you take this little difference in understanding of verse 3, he says that he sits on the praises of Israel. But where does God sit literally? He sits on a throne, right? Which means to me that when we praise him, when we worship him, our praises literally go directly into his throne and literally begin to lift him up. And that's what we're doing is lifting up the name of Jesus Christ. And he says in the New Testament that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men nigh. So if you need him in your life, if you need him in your situation, you need him to be present and visible. You need to praise him. You need to worship him and that will lift him up. And when he's lifted up, he'll draw other people. Because let me let me let me tell you a secret. If you need financial help, it's not going to fall from heaven in a bag with a dollar sign on it. If you need a ride To work, Jesus Christ is not going to show up in a flaming chariot. It's not how it's going to work. God said, Jesus said that when he left this earth, he left to us the ministry of reconciliation. That he is going to use people. You need financial help. That means you need God to move on somebody's heart. You need a ride. You need God to move on somebody's heart. Whatever it is you need, you need God to send somebody in your life to facilitate that. So you need people. Everybody say, I need People, brothers and sisters in the Lord. Oh, sorry. You may stop talking now. Um, brothers and sisters in the Lord. And the Bible says also in the book of Psalms uh, that unity is, is like the oil that ran down Aaron's beard, which, ha- which happens to be the anointing oil. And nothing brings anointing into the body of Christ like unity, how, how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together, the psalm says. So when we come together, we bring it together in unity. We create anointing. We lift up his name. We praise him. We worship him. And as he's lifted up, he draws people, which is what we need. 
because he will use those people to answer your prayers. Amen. That's a totally different sermon. Uh, verse number four. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted and you did deliver them. Everybody say, I trust, I trust in, God. in God. Okay, now you're done. Verse five. <laughs> they cried unto thee and they were delivered. They trusted in thee and they were not confounded. I don't know about you, but I want to be delivered. I want to be not confounded. Jesus says, but I am a worm. I know this is in Psalm, but remember, he's referring to this in the book of Matthew. I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despise of the people. Last week's sermon was on that worm when we looked it up in Hebrew, the crimson worm. And I don't have time to go over the whole thing. But in a nutshell, what you need to understand is that this particular kind of worm this particular worm only hatches eggs one time in its life. It only has children one time in its life. And it does not have children until it finds the proper piece of fence or stick or wood to attach itself to. And when it attaches itself to that wood, it attaches to it so hard and the adhesive is so strong that you cannot rip the worm off of the wood without destroying its body and dying. Everybody say, Jesus, Jesus. on the cross. On the cross. <laughs> so Jesus on the cross... So you have the, this worm that he's referring to. It attaches itself to wood. And once it creates this shell around its body from attaching to wood, it turns a crimson red color. And once it turns that red color, it begins to have children. And when it has children, the children literally feed off of the body of the worm. Remember, Jesus said, take this bread for it is my body broken for you. Take this wine. It is my blood poured out for you. That's how these worms feed. This is how these worms grow. And when they become old enough, the mother will release them by that shell breaking and it takes exactly three days, by the way, interestingly enough. And three days after that shell is formed and the babies are ready to go, that shell will break apart. It will turn white and she'll fall to the ground like snow. The reason I wanted you to remember that is for here a little while later in the sermon. That is the worm from verse number six. There's a lot more detail. We have a whole message on it. You can get a copy of it on the table. Ballad of the Crimson Worm. Today is part two. At the end of the dawn. But I want you to remember that. Psalm 22, verse 1, starts out saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But it doesn't really. Some translations leave out how it really starts. Uh, some applications, especially if you're trying to look it up on the Internet. Some people will call this next part arbitrary or trivial or meaningless or dubious or whatever your favorite word is. But it is very much needed. And there's a message. Every, I don't want you all to say this, but I'm just going to say it. I, I was about to ask you to say it. That's why I said that. Don't say it. Uh, <laughs> the thing is, there's no such thing as an arbitrary or meaningless word in the Bible, period. I don't care if it's saying this psalm is to the chief musician. I can guarantee you, you can break that phrase down in Hebrew and you'll find something amazing. In fact, we're going to partially do that. So how it starts out in Psalm number 22, verse 1, actually says, and some of your Bibles probably say, to the chief musician... Upon Ajaleth Shahar, a psalm of David, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If you are uh, on my Facebook page or follow us on Facebook, I don't know if that's the correct term. If you can follow people on Facebook, you can follow me on Twitter, but I don't have Twitter, so you can't. So let's do Facebook. So if you follow me on Facebook, uh, you will have seen throughout this week, um, Actually, mostly yesterday, a few quotes that I shared online. I was trying to give a little hint, a little preview of today's message. And I want to I want to read one of those to you real quick. It says um, when it comes to the words 
that proceed out of the mouth of God. How many of you have ever gotten a word from God? Let me, let me, let me start somewhere else. Let me just follow the Spirit here a little bit. How many of you guys, um, Margaret Ann, could you flip the, the blows blinds down? It's like really bothering me. Sorry. Thank you. Great job. How many of you in your heart of hearts, in your life right now, hey, you know what, don't even raise your hands. It's going to be rhetorical. The answer should be across the board. Everybody should raise their hand. Maybe you feel good today, but in your heart of hearts, day in and day out as you walk upon this earth, do you, don't you kind of feel like uh, more often than not, it's, it starts to become a drudgery? Isn't there always something on your mind? Isn't there always enough weighing you down? Isn't there always the next thing? Isn't there always that thing you can't get rid of? Isn't there always that situation that won't go away? Isn't it always what's going to happen tomorrow? Isn't it always your health? Isn't it always your finances? Isn't it always your children? Isn't it always your husband or your wife? It's always something. It just seems like, and of course I'm not you know, that old, I guess, but it seems like the older that you get, the more that it becomes and the heavier that it becomes and the more there is weighing on your shoulders. I have two little kids, a three-year-old and a four-year-old, I watch them run around and play and like I love kids so much and I especially love my kids and they're so funny and they're so cute. But but really a big part of that joy that I think that they bring to me is they're innocent. I just like watching somebody that doesn't have a lot of problems. It's fun. They don't understand that they don't have a lot of problems. They think they do have a lot of problems because the banana has a spot on it or the television show was the one they just saw. Or he, I like brother's pajamas better, whatever this. So there's all kinds of problems that they have. They don't really have problems. And then I, I look at them and I think one day, you know, they're going to get older. She's going to come to me. Some boy's going to give her a present. I'm going to uh, kill somebody. And then all kinds of things are going to go wrong and happen. There's going to be all kinds of problems are going to happen. And, uh, and sometimes I hate, and you've heard people say it before, you know, like whether to bring a child into this crazy world or not, people think about that because it, get, it just seems like it gets so hard. It seems like it gets so heavy. Now, how many people, I wonder if we took a survey of Christians, would say that when they finally came to a point in their life, when they decided to give everything to God and commit to a church, I wonder how many of them would say that that heaviness got lighter or went away. And I think a lot of people probably would at first. And then a year into it, do you feel lighter or do you feel heavier? Then two years into it, do you feel lighter or do you feel heavier? Did you actually, did the Spirit of God, did the commitment to your church, did it actually alleviate all of these problems that you had and now you walk through life so carefree and there's nothing you have to worry about? Or did eventually church become another issue? And did there become other issues inside the church? And now inside the church, the people that were supposed to love you won't stop talking bad about you. And now inside the church, the people that at one time were so happy to have a sinner walk through the back door are disgusted that there's a sinner sitting in the seat because you should have changed by now. Something should have happened by now. You should be better by now. You should look different by now. There are rules and regulations and things you should be doing that you are not doing. You need to step down from this, back down from that. Don't do this. Don't talk about that. You need to be this. You need to whatever. There's so many rules and regulations. You can't dance. You can't do this. You can't see that movie, blah, blah, blah. And I'm not, and trust me, hear my heart here. I'm not up here advocating a sinful lifestyle. I'm talking about grace, and the Bible says not to use that grace as a cloak of maliciousness. I understand that. We're not talking about taking God's grace and just running out there and going crazy. 
but I am talking about what's on my heart today, which is I just feel like the Bible promised us that he who the Son sets free is free indeed. Right? But I don't know that our church people in this day and age feel that way. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the youth feel like they can be youth. I'm not sure if the women feel like they can be used. I'm not sure if the men feel like they're leadership material. I'm not sure if blah, 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 go on, go on, go on, because there's so many, so many rules and regulations, it seems like. There's so many guidelines that I don't feel like after a while of being in church, I was actually free. I feel like I traded one type of bondage for another. And that's not how I want to live my life. That's not the kind of church that we're building. We want to offer something a little bit different. <laughs> And the reason for that prelude is what we're about to get into in Psalm 22, verse 1. To the chief musician upon Ageleth Shahar, a psalm of David, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I want to read to you what this word Ageleth Shalar actually means. Literally, it can be translated as deer or doe. But that's not how it was being used in this particular psalm. What this means, more literally, is a loving address of a woman. You can look at Proverbs 5.19 as an example. It is hard to be explained, the, the author writes, what is meant by this title for Psalm 22, on the hind of the dawn. These words appear to me to be the name of a poem, more likely the tune to which the psalm was to be sung. Hind of the dawn was probably the morning sun itself shedding its first beams, which the Arabians call gazelle. There's so much that goes into that. What I wrote on Facebook is when it comes to the words that proceed out of the mouth of God, and this is the direction we want to go. How many of you have ever felt like you've received a word from God? How many of you ever desired to receive a word from God? How many of you need a word from God right now? How many of you know that whether you feel like you've ever received a word from God or not, Jesus Christ said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And if you haven't heard from God today, you can pick up the Bible and you can hear from him today because that's his word. However, I can stand up here and tell you what the Bible says, and I can be absolutely right, and I can quote it word for word, and it can be absolutely true. Pick any scripture. I could preach a sermon, and I could talk about how perfect love casts out fear. So if you love God, you shouldn't be fearful, because perfect love casts out fear. And I could do that over and over and over again, and if I did it right, I could use the term perfect love, and I could beat you half to death with it. Perfect love casts out fear. Why are you fearful? Perfect love casts out fear. And you can do that in a big enough church, and a lot of people will start shouting, Amen, brother. God bless you. Amen. Perfect love casts out fear. I feel you, pastor. Amen. Preacher. Perfect love. Why are you fearful? Yes, we're strong. We're big. We're men. We are not fearful. We love. Or I could say, you know, God loves you. God loves you so deeply, so dearly, so desperately. God understands that you walk in a fearful world, but God wants you to know that perfect love casts out fear. S same scripture. 
But it's a little bit of a different message, isn't it? Perfect love casts out fear. God loves you. It's okay if you're fearful. Seek God. Seek God. Draw close to him. Perfect love casts out fear. Or I could say, according to the word of God, perfect love casts out fear. There's a champion in you. Go attack the day today. You're going to do so well. God loves you so much. Everything's going to be okay. Same scripture. Again, different message. It's all different. Why is it different if we're using the same words? Because when it comes to the words that proceed out of the mouth of God, the lyrics are only half the story. There is a melody to his instruction, a divine arrangement that can change everything. Our goal today is to discover part of this melody, and my hope is that it will change the way that we dance. Because whether you're aware of it or not, you are in the middle of a cosmic dance with your creator. And there's nothing you can do about it. There's not a thing. God dances in circles. He dances a waltz. I can almost prove that to you. Why, why would I think that God dances in circles? Because he created all things, didn't he? And didn't he say that I'm a God that knows the end from the beginning? Didn't he say that what has been shall be? Didn't God do everything backwards? Doesn't God travel in cycles? Didn't he tell Paul, tell my people to walk circumspectly? Don't the seasons leave and come again? Don't the circuits of the waters travel in a circle? Doesn't the air blow from the east to the west and the west to the east? And doesn't the jet stream travel in a circular pattern? Don't we live on a globe that is circular in nature? Doesn't it spin on its own axis? Doesn't it rotate around the sun, which is also a globe, which is also spherical? Don't all the planets do this? Don't we live in a spiral galaxy that also moves in a circular pattern? Aren't we made out of circles? Don't we always walk in a cycle? Isn't it always the case that history repeats itself? Doesn't it ring true that what has been shall be? Do we not reap what we sow? What goes around comes around. Are these things true? And are they that way because God is the creator of all things and that's how he dances? Don't the constellations come around every 12 months? You're sitting in a chair right now and I'm standing still. And we're moving in like a 2,000 mile per hour circle, even though we're trying not to. The best you can do is point a treadmill the opposite direction and, and haul. <laughs> and you're still going to be moving. You're still going to be going in a circle. Look how God created everything. You've ever looked at your own self, at human beings? He could have made us look any way that he wanted to. But he made us, and if you're going to put a ring on that finger, you've got to make it a circle, because that's how the finger was created. If you're going to buy a necklace, it's going to be circular in shape. When you put on a T-shirt, the neck's going to be in a circle. The sleeves are going to be in a circle. The bottom of the shirt's a circle. Your waistband's a circle. Your belt's a circle. The bottom of your pants are a circle. Your socks are circles. Everything's made in circles because you're made like a circle. Everything's cylindrical. Your veins are cylindrical. Your capillaries are cylindrical. Your lungs are. Your intestines are. God does everything, and he does it by patterns. What goes around comes around. What has been shall be. You are right now in the middle of a cosmic dance, and it's the most beautiful waltz that anyone could ever hope to create. But some of us, sometimes we fall off track, and I think it's because we don't understand the melody we don't understand the harmony. See, Jesus Christ, at the beginning of Psalm chapter 22, a psalm that is for uh, Ajath Shalar, I don't have it in front of me anymore, however you say that, uh, what that means is, according to historians, according to scholars, this is the tune, this is the melody to which the psalm would be sung. 
So when Jesus Christ said, Father, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? He knows enough to know that God hasn't left him. He knows enough to know that what's going to happen, he's, he's going to be resurrected three days later. God hasn't forsaken him. God just walked over here for a minute. And he said, son, I'll be right back because there's something that has to happen. This is the next step in our dance. And Jesus knew that. But if he's going to follow suit, he needs to, he needs to quote Psalm 22. He needs to partake in his dance. Left foot, left foot, right foot, right foot. Father, father, why hast thou forsaken me? To the tune of Psalm 22. The melody, the harmony. In Israel, they read Psalm 22 only a few times a year, but it's very, very sacred times of the year. There is a woman in the Old Testament Bible named Esther. She has one of the most amazing stories that you could ever read. One of the most amazing, symbolic, prophetic, humbling, beautiful stories in the entire Word of God. And Esther violated every church rule by being a woman and being in charge. God bless her. I'm sure God forgave her for that. For speaking her mind and doing things. Y'all understand I'm joking? Okay. So Esther, she went through an amazing time. They, they wrote a script. They made a movie about Esther called One Night with the King. And what that was, her preparation for becoming the bride that she was meant to be. Everybody say, that's me. And one part of Esther, she does something that is completely unconventional she breaks the rules. She literally breaks the law by declaring a fast at a time of year when they're not allowed to fast. What she says is, go and gather all the Jews who are found in Shushan to, and fast over me for her preparation for the king. Do not eat and do not drink for three days, night and day. So, Old Testament Jews who have no revelation that Jesus Christ is their Messiah, they take Psalm 22 and they read it during the feast or the fast of Esther that happens every single year. And they actually change the date of the fast from Passover, which is when she called it, to Purim, which is a different holiday because it's literally illegal for them to fast according to their rules on Passover. And she broke those rules, so they had to change it. But when it comes to that time of year, they quote Psalm 22, Eli, Eli, Ela Sabachthani, which we understand now as Jesus Christ being on the cross who stayed in the ground for three days and three nights. And Esther says, go and fast for three days and three nights. So they are singing the tune of salvation. They are singing the tune of redemption, but they don't even know what they're talking about. And they messed up the melody because they took it from Passover. And they moved it to Purim, but Christ was crucified on Passover. He is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What I want you to understand is in Psalm 22, verse one, when it says that we are going to sing this tune to the melody of the doe or the deer, the hind of the dawn. That has a lot to do with the death, the burial, the resurrection, the glorification of Jesus Christ. Everything to do with that. Death, burial, resurrection, glorification. Because Jesus Christ said many times things wouldn't happen until he was glorified. The Holy Ghost wouldn't be poured out until he was glorified. Glorified means lifted up after his crucifixion and his resurrection. You know what God told Moses when Moses said, hey, I really want to see your glory. God said, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'm going to show you my back or my hinder parts. But when we're singing this tune at the end of the dawn or the hind of the dawn or the deer that pants after the water in the dawn, there's there's something significant about that, because to talk about the end of the dawn, which is one translation, the end of the dawn 
The dawn is actually the beginning, isn't it? The dawn is understood to be the beginning of the day. But that beginning of the day eventually becomes the morning and the dawn ends. And as they say in Arabic, this is the sunburst through the clouds. I want you to have that imagery. The sunburst through the clouds, the gazelle of the morning, the hind of the dawn, the end of the dawn. Another quote that I put on Facebook was the death of the dawn precedes the birth of a new day. How many of you need something new in your life? How many of you believe in God for something? How many of you are really in a, in a state of need? One of my favorite authors, I actually hate his books, but I love his quotes, said, um, you know, it's really our, our fear of the future that causes us to cling to the past. We're so scared to let things die because we've been taught from a young age that death is bad. But in Psalm 22, Eli, Eli, Elisa, back to my father, father, why hast thou forsaken me? We're seeing a picture of God bringing something to an end so he can bring something else to a beginning. Everybody say cycle. cycle. Everybody say circle. circle. We in the word, one of the words that's on my heart today for you guys from God is that he has something for you. He has something new for you. Amen. He has an answer to your prayer. And he's not sitting up in heaven uh, looking at this time scale and, and trying to see how long you can wait so that you'll understand the scripture that there's nothing. He'll never put anything so heavy on you that you can't bear it. That's not the scripture. That's not the tune that he's dancing to. He's dancing to Psalm 22 and he's wondering when, oh, when my child when my son, when my daughter, are you going to let that thing die so that you can receive the new thing that I have for you? Because the reason you can't receive it is you're so scared to let go of whatever that other thing is. I don't know what it is for you. I, maybe it's a relationship. I'm not speaking to husbands and wives, but other people. And maybe it's a friendship relationship. I don't know what it is. But you know, and God knows, there is something holding you back. But your problem is, you're so in love with that thing, that on one hand, you're asking God to move. On the other hand, you're trying your best to stay still. Inside that thing. And God is saying, listen, I do things backwards. I do things backwards. If you're working at Starbucks... And you're trying to get on at Carabas, it's a good idea not to quit Starbucks until they say they're going to hire you at Carabas. But if God has spoken to you and said, This is what I have for you to do, He's not wanting you to hang on to Starbucks for so long that you can't clear your schedule up or find enough time to go do your interview or whatever the thing is. So if you're in this, this is just a, I know it's not a really good example, but going from Starbucks to Carabas is not necessarily a big deal to God. But going from Starbucks, to being a pastor or going from Starbucks to whatever God's called you to do for the rest of your life to your career, that could be a big deal. And sometimes you have to let one thing go before you can walk into another thing. It's not necessarily the wisdom of men, but a lot of times it is the wisdom of God. Let's move on. Psalm 22 also represents breaking the rules. Everybody likes that, right? People are so religious. 
Everybody likes that. Because it references us back to Esther who called a fast when fasts were illegal. Jesus Christ is walking on the face of the earth. He's doing all kinds of works on the Sabbath, and they hate him for it. Say, how can you possibly tell your people to do this on the Sabbath day? The Sabbath day is a day of rest. We shall do no work on the Sabbath. And he says, listen, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath, uh, men weren't created for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created for men. Is it better to save somebody on the Sabbath or let them die? And he confounds them and confuses them because he breaks all of their religious standards and all of their rules. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, God says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, says the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of the beast. I I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this at your hand to tread my courts? Do not bring vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons, the Sabbaths and the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity. Even the solemn meeting. Verse 14, your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. Man, that's harsh terminology. God says, my soul hates your gathering together and your assemblies. This is for a purpose, and we'll clear this up in a second. They are trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you. Make clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes and cease to do evil. Learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, everybody say crimson worm. Though they be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Remember when that worm is done three days later. It turns from crimson to white and falls to the ground like snow. That worm out of Psalm 22. This is part of the melody. This is part of the tune. Death, burial, and resurrection. But I want, to, I want you to see the juxtaposition of ideas right here in Isaiah. Are you with me? Is everybody still out there? We're coming to a conclusion, I promise, and you're going to like it. You ready? Well, this is technically not it, but get ready. Isaiah chapter 1 starts out with people being unreasonable. It references the reason why Esther could call a fast during the time of Passover. It references why Jesus Christ could tell his disciples to work during the Sabbath because there are ways to follow God's laws but not do it to God's tune. You understand? So God called all the feasts and he said, do this every year. But then they started doing it religiously, and God says, you know what, now I hate it. He said, I want you to rest every Sabbath, but now they find salvation in their Sabbath day's rest. And God says, well, now I hate it. God says, gather together at every new moon. And now they gather together because they feel righteous about their new moon activities. And God says, well, now I hate it. My soul hates it. The church says, well, let's have church every Sunday. And then we slap religion on it. And we think we're doing God some kind of favor. And God's standing up in heaven going, my soul abhors your assemblies because your people, they're not seeking my face. You're not seeking my face. This is a religious attitude. It is the right words, but it is the wrong tune. You're saying the right things, but your melody is all jacked up. Do you hear me? Are you with me? Is that true? Does that happen? 
Let's do Sundays. Let's do Wednesdays. Let's slap a title on it. Let's slap a religion on it. Let's do it over and over again. And maybe when we all die, we'll see each other in heaven. Maybe. God says, wow, that sounds really good, but I hate it. That's like the worst song ever. But we keep singing it. Oh, no, 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 no. He's going to end up liking it. Just keep doing it over and over again. God's like, no. It's completely unreasonable, according to the Jewish mindset, to fast during Passover. But he ends it by saying, come and let us reason together. Here's what's reasonable. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I didn't give you your feast days, your holy days, your holidays, and your assemblies so that you could forgive yourself of your own sins. I gave these things to you so you could gather together, seek my face, and I could forgive your sins. That's reasonable. I'm going to talk to you about three aspects of music. Melody, harmony, and rhythm. John woke up. Melody, harmony, and rhythm. The melody is the succession of notes, distinctive sequence, or tune. The melody of a song can be found in the horizontal representation, the aspect or the structure of the piece of music. In other words, if you're reading music from left to right, what you're seeing in the tunes, whether you know how to read it or not, this is the melody. This is how the line should, work, should fit together uh, horizontally. You understand what I'm saying? Everybody say, God, God. Has, a has a melody. Harmony is agreement in that action. Harmony involves an opinion or a feeling. Harmony is order or congruity of parts to their whole, one to another, agreeable sounds, any combination of notes sounded simultaneously. Harmony is what you see when you look at those lines going from left to right. Are you with me? You look at the lines going left to right, but they also need to fit together going down the page. Like those left to right lines, they've got to fit together structurally up and down. So melody is horizontal. Everybody say horizontal. Harmony is vertical. Everybody say vertical. Are you starting to see a picture? Horizontal, vertical, horizontal, vertical. See, there's a certain melody to your life. Everybody has a melody. That's the horizontal part. You're putting one foot in front of the other. You're doing whatever you're doing. This year you're working somewhere. Next year you might be working somewhere else. You married whoever you married. You had the kids that you had. You're at the place that you're at. You go to church where you go to church. That might all change and it's going to eventually be your past. It's going to be your testimony. That is the melody of your life. Of what you left behind. And part of that melody is the direction that you're going in the future. And you might take a twist here. You might take a turn there. But that's the tune. That's the melody of your life. That's all you. To a degree, you can do whatever you want. I mean, it'd be different if you were born in a different part of the world. Understand that we aren't absolutely free. But in the spot where you're at, you're free to do what you want. Walk whatever direction you want to walk. You really are. If you choose to go right, you might hurt a lot of people, but you can do that. If you choose to go left, you might make them all happy. You can do that, too. It's up to you. It's the melody of your life. When you take your own melody. And you decide, according to Psalm 22, I am not going to live my own life. I am not going to be the master of my own death. I am not going to give myself my own promises. 
I am not going to be in control, but I'm going to take that melody, I'm going to take that amount of control that I do have, and I'm going to give that over to God to make structure with it. Then you, have, you, you still have a melody of your life, but you've decided to walk in agreement with his harmony. You understand what I'm saying? So your melody lines up with his, his harmony, and now you have a testimony that is not only horizontal, but is starting to become vertical. What happened on the cross? Jesus died, right? What's happening in Psalm 22? Uh, it's a scripture of Jesus dying, right? What happened in what we read in Isaiah? How do your sins that are as scarlet, how do they become white as snow? Through the death of Jesus Christ, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. I'm pounding that home for a reason. You'll get it in a second. There's one other aspect to music called the rhythm. The rhythm is the pattern of musical movement through time. The pattern of musical movement through time. How does God travel? Circles, right? What goes around comes around. Have you ever noticed that about your own life? A lot of times you end up where you started out. You figure out what you already knew. You finally heard what you've been saying this whole time. You understand that? You know the mystery about a circle, a perfect circle? If I'm drawing a circle and I start right here, what is this? Is this the beginning of the circle? Now what is it? It's the end, right? So the beginning and the end are at the same place. You always end up where you started out. God said in the Garden of Eden he wanted us to live forever. We jacked that all up, and guess how it's going to end? We're going to live forever. It started in a garden with disobedience. He brought it to an end with his son walking into a garden saying, Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Right? He started off having a dwelling place on earth. But because we sinned, he had to leave. Guess how it's going to end up? Revelation chapter 22. The new Jerusalem's coming back to earth. It's going to end how it started because what has been shall be and God travels in circles. Now your whole life is one big dance. It's one big circle. But along that line, along that circle, there's little things that you encounter. Things you didn't learn about your wife, you finally got down. Things you didn't learn about your husband, you finally got it down. Things that were confusing about being a parent, it came all the way around. It ended how it started. About your job, about your finances, about whatever. How many of you, are you, if you haven't got there yet, be honest with yourself for a second. Can you see down the road that at the end of it, if you ever get it all figured out, what it's going to add up to is that it was always simple the whole time? We just made it too complicated. By the time you figure it out, you're going to go, I really already knew that. I just didn't trust that it would work. So we travel, circles, circles, circles. Rhythm is the pattern of musical movement through time. A specific kind or such a pattern formed by a series of notes differing in duration and stress, a waltz rhythm. The vertically represented structure is, is harmony and the horizontal is melody. If that is not making sense, try it like this. Melody is a part of a song you would sing along with. If you're looking at the music on a page, it would be the top line or the voice. Ever turned on your radio and started singing? Okay, that's your life. Doesn't that make sense? The melody is you moving right along. It's the part you sing along with. You're in agreement with it because you got to make the decisions, right or wrong. Harmony is the other notes that go along with the melody but are not in the foreground. They're in the background. They're deeper. Harmony is more than one note. When sounding together, it creates a chord or something that sounds nice or beautiful together. God said, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. 
My ways are higher than your ways. Our worship team can go ahead and come up. Rhythm is the duration that each note is played. It has nothing to do with the pitch. The highness or the lowness of a note it has everything to do with the beats and the combinations and the lengths of notes. Listen to this. Form is the shape of a whole song and the order of the different sections. Many songs have repeating sections and contrasting sections. When you analyze what order they happen, you can describe the form of a song. Everybody say the end of the dawn. It's just the beginning of something new. What I want you to realize today is that you're walking in a huge circular pattern. You have the melody of your life. You have the harmony of God's will. And you get to decide what the rhythm is going to be. The rhythm is sometimes more stressful and sometimes it's not. What is the rhythm of your life? What have you decided in your best efforts to follow God? Because you do get to decide how hard it's going to be. You do get to decide how easy it's going to be. We were talking in our leadership meeting this morning about healing, a little bit about victory, about overcoming nature, about testimonies. And something that dawned on me a long time ago, but I don't know if I ever put it into words the same way. It's very, very simple. How many of you are in awe of God's ability to heal? How many of you think that's a good thing that God heals? How many of you think it's a good thing that God gives victory? How many of you think God's grace is amazing? How many of you think God's forgiveness is amazing? We could go on and on and on. We all raise our hands. But what if I asked you, how many of you think that sickness is amazing? Well, you can't have healing if nobody gets sick. If you know anybody that has cancer, they can be healed of cancer. But you can't. You don't have it. I'm not saying that makes cancer amazing. I'm just saying, have you think about it. You like God's grace? Or do you like sin? Do you think sin is amazing? I don't know how to answer that. But there wouldn't be any grace without sin. I love God's forgiveness. I'm not in love with people messing up or doing people wrong. But without that happening, there would be no forgiveness. I love victory. But not everybody loves the battle. But without the battle, there wouldn't be any victory. Everybody loves testimonies. But not everybody loves the test. It's a big circle. It's a big cycle. And what I want you to walk out of this room with today, if nothing else, is to understand that you can laugh or you can cry. It's completely up to you. You can be depressed or you can be happy. It's completely up to you. But you're still going to walk that circle. You can stand still on the face of the earth and you're still moving in a circle. You can do your best, but you can't get off of that cycle. So you might as well put one hand in the air, one hand on your waist and just dance. And just travel around because it's a big circle along a big circle. That's all you can do. You can smile in the rain or you can cry about it. It's up to you. It really is. You can be depressed or you can be happy. You can say, oh my God, I'm so upset because I'm sick. Or you can say, oh my God, it's so amazing that he's going to heal me. It doesn't matter. What if he doesn't heal you? Everybody dies. It's okay. That's the ultimate life. That's the completion of the cycle. The Bible says greater is the day of one's death than the day of one's life. But most of us are so scared and we cry so much about getting to that place because we've been taught that it's so evil. It's just the end of the dawn. It's just the birth of a new day. It's just the, it's just another tomb along that same circle. It's a slight change, but you're still dancing. 
Amen? I'm glad to be walking with God, but I'm even more excited to know that it's not a lame walk through a park. Not that that's always lame, but it's more fun to dance, isn't it? Some people don't realize that and some people do. Frederick Nietzsche, if I'm saying that right, I think it's Frederick, I know it's Nietzsche. He's an atheist, boo-hoo, I don't care, whatever. He still said some cool stuff. He's a philosopher, he's a deep thinker, and he said, people that choose to dance always look insane to those that can't hear the music. Paul said that the crucifixion of the cross of Christ is to us salvation, but to those who don't know, it's foolishness. So you're always going to have those people that stand outside the circle and laugh at you for dancing. It's a junior high Valentine's party, you understand? Some people choose to get on the dance floor and make it happen. Other people choose to stand around and laugh at those people because they're not bold enough to do it themselves. Where are you going to live? Who are you going to be? You can choose this day. The end of the dawn. Just dance. Just dance with it. Thank you.